Welcome to the Providence Community Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. If you'd like to stay connected with us, download our app, Providence Community, or visit our website, providencecommunity.org. We are so excited to be here. Um, traveling all over the place this is kind of what we do. Uh, our, our home is in Florida, and um, but we, we just love being out on the road, seeing what God is doing all over the place. And when you go to different houses, you, you, real, you begin to realize, I, mean, I, don't, I hope you guys know what you've got up here on the hill in the middle of, I'm not even sure where we are. Uh, not every place is like this. Okay. <laughs> This one church uh, in Minneapolis not too long ago on a Sunday morning, this lady gets up and she's going to say, she was going to say, right in the middle of a Sunday service, interrupt everything, and she was going to say, if we don't start praying and fasting more, God's going to come in and write Ichabod all over this church, which means the glory has departed. Kind of a common thing for Old Testament prophets to say. This lady stands up on a Sunday morning and says, if we don't start praying and fasting more, God's going to come in and write Michelob all over this church. (laughs) <laughs> you know what she was drinking at home I was like, I was like is he going to do that in like neon lettering maybe, maybe it'll grow the church I don't know listen not every place is like this and we just want to just honor your, your leaders and just the people who just call this place home I don't know of anybody who would invite us to come in and like take the whole day on a Saturday and talk about marriage and we were just like wow I mean the hunger level the hunger level of your leadership in this house is a, a good indicator of the health of the house overall, right? And so uh, that's just a big deal, and we just really, really honor that. So what's on your heart this morning? Wow, good morning. You guys are a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. But we've been honored to be here this weekend, and yeah, yesterday was great. I, I couldn't believe that people came and listened to us talk all day, uh, but I think it was good. I wouldn't good, even do that. Good, <laughs> But yeah, I'm happy to be here with you. Bill has a powerful message on his heart today, so I'm really excited for you to get to hear that. Mm. And uh, I guess I'll just share with you real quickly just where I've been lately and what God is speaking to my heart. Um, you know, after this whole 2020 thing, isn't, isn't this fun? Fun time in history, 2020 and 2021. Like, you know, whether it's the whole political climate, the pandemic issue, um, the realization of the, the elements of racism that still exist, and all these things that have surfaced in our world. And I found myself just really grieving, not just grieving for those things, but also for where I've seen the body of Christ go on, you know, not everybody, but I've seen a lot of pride and arrogance and division. And so I really have been in a place of just praying that through and wanting to shut down all the voices. I got to a place where I was just so grieved. I said, Lord, I just want to hear your voice. I only want to hear what you're saying. What are you saying? Because all of this down here, it's just this noise and it's getting in our blood. It's like toxins. And, and so I want to just get aligned with what the Lord is saying and capture his mind. So just recently, we were in Pinyan, New York. And, okay, so when I go to, from Pinyan, oh, cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful little town. And so I felt this overwhelming grief. I had been up till about 2 or 3 in the morning, and I felt like I was carrying the weight of the world. And so I was just praying and praying, and I couldn't shut my mind off. And I felt like by the time I fell asleep, I had prayed for everybody in the entire universe. (laughs) And so I got up the next day. We went to this coffee shop in Pinyan, and I felt compelled. Like, I had to go into the bathroom. Okay, when I go to a public bathroom, I don't touch anything. (laughs) I'm, like, very germ conscious. And uh, so I go in the bathroom, and I found myself kneeling on this public bathroom floor. And, And just tears and just crying out to God in this bathroom and oh my gosh it was amazing it was like this portal opened up and suddenly I was there with the Lord and and he was just hearing my heart and just pouring out 
his love to this world. I can't even really quite explain it, but it was really powerful. But the thing that I felt that he, he brought you know, to my attention took my mind back to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is a really common verse that probably most of you know. You know, and it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, I grew up hearing this verse, and the way that my brothers and sisters around me, the way that we interpreted that was if the world would pray, if the world would humble themselves, if the world would turn from their wicked ways, if everybody out there would stop sinning, then everything will be fine. But that's not what it says. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And that, this is the thing that I feel like God is bringing to my attention. My people, my people, like humble yourselves Pray and seek my face. Turn from your wicked ways. And I thought, well, what is the wickedness? Because sometimes we think of sin as certain things, but we don't stop to think about the fact that pride and arrogance and those kinds of things, that's sin. It's not of the kingdom. So that's where I am personally, is I just feel like God calling me to that place, you know, to humble myself. So when I'm talking about this, I'm speaking to myself too drop my weapons, drop my opinions, drop my, all the stuff, and just focus on the kingdom and love people, and get into that place of sacrificial compassion and listening, and so that's where I am, and I know that Bill's going to talk more on that, and he's got some powerful things to bring today. That's a great intro. Anyway, I love you guys. And um, thank you for listening. Yeah, I met, I met this girl when I was five years old. It's true. Yeah. She's my next-door neighbor. If you were here yesterday, you heard this. But she was, my, she was my next-door neighbor at this freaky hippie trailer park in Austin, Texas. Uh, my parents were missionary evangelists, super conservative, wouldn't even let me have a TV. I live next door to her. Her mom's a belly dancer. And, um, <clears throat> Not ballet. Yeah. Belly. And one day, belly one day her mom is dancing with a sword on her head, practicing this in the trailer. Impressive, right? And this belly dance routine she got going on, she bumps into something, sword falls off, sticks in her leg. And so um, this is the first words I ever heard my future wife say. She knocks on the door of our trailer and says, can you come help us? My mama stabbed herself with a sword. I kind of lost my Texan (laughs) accent along the way. I was terrified. I was like so terrified. So I had to marry her. Couldn't help her. So awesome. Thanks. Yay. Um, we, we actually have been married 30 years this year, and um, yay. And uh, we wrote a book uh, that, that is out there, and we were talking all about it yesterday. It's, I'm going to just go through this stuff real quick here. The book out there is called The Four People You Marry. And the four people you marry are the person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they are right now, and the person that they are becoming. And problems show up in marriage when you fall in love with one or two out of the four. And when the other ones show up, I promise you they will. You can find yourself saying things like, I didn't sign up for this. Or when you look at the person and go, wow, who in the world did I marry? Who are you? You realize there's a transition that's taken place. And if you're not prepared for it, then, uh, then you can actually, people will justify just throwing a covenant away when things begin to change because they feel like they got fooled into something. But the reality is you're both changing. And when you learn to change together, you can actually have a glorious future. So that's what the book's about. Um, there's a book out there called Reckless Grace. It's uh, a book that I actually had been in the works for 10 years. It just came, came out a couple of years ago. And uh, there's a new chapter. There's a new addition to this. Uh, and the last chapter is called The Baptism of Innocence. And uh, if I could just describe this in a nutshell. Jesus said in John 20, 23, he says this phrase. One of the last commands that he gives his disciples or impartations. He says, whoever sins, you forgive. They are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Sounds like a lot of responsibility, doesn't it? And I felt like the Lord was drawing my attention back to that, asking the question, what would it be like if the grace you gave away actually mattered? Not that you're the source of grace. He remains the source. But you and I are meant to be a resource of grace to this world in a way that's so powerful and tangible that it breaks the chains of sin off the lives of people. Right? 
He, he's the one who's the chain breaker, but he wants to use you to free this world, right? So that's what this book is all about. And then there's uh, some USB thumb drives out there. I mentioned these super quick. This is a 24-hour teaching on identity. Yes, 24 hours long. God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I even formed you. Now think about that. That means God knew you before you knew you could even be known. So I got questions. Here's one. What'd you know? What he knew about you from before the foundation of the world, that's the truth about your identity, and that's who you really are. So you really have one assignment in this entire life, and that is to find out what God believes about you and agree with that, right? It's 24 hours of learning to agree with what God believes about you. And if, you, if by the end of that you still don't know who you are, have Pastor Nathan cast a demon out of you or something. Um, speaking of demons... <clears throat> this next one, <laughs> it's a good segue. Uh, this one's called Walking in the Power and the Presence of the Holy Spirit. It's 12 hours of teaching on spiritual warfare, but I don't like the term warfare. I like the term spiritual joyfare, right? Because demons hate joy. Demons and religious people hate joy, okay? <laughs> that was just fun to say. <clears throat> so... Spiritual joy fair. There's a lot of notes on there as well. Um, this one's called, uh, this is not really even a name for this. It's just got a little smiley face on it. Um, this is 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation. Do you know that Revelation is the happiest book in the whole Bible? It really is. I know some of you are like, I read Revelation when this whole pandemic thing started because, you know, when, when things go weird, we read Revelation. It's what we do. <laughs> I had a guy that said, you know, your packaging is too complicated. Make it simple. Put these USBs in these little plastic bags and that Revelation one, throw a little smiley face on it. And I said, why? And he goes, because it's the same packaging I used to buy my drugs in. <laughs> oh, some of you are like nodding, like you know exactly what he's talking about. Got it. <laughs> 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation. There is more than one beast in the book of Revelation, and he's actually not new. He showed up in the Bible before because it's a spirit. How about Antichrist? Antichrist doesn't even show up in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? Matter of fact, the word anti and Antichrist doesn't even mean opposed to. It means instead of. It means Jesus is a part of my life, but instead of being the focus, I'm just going to set him aside for a second to focus on something else, which is why you find the Antichrist spirit in church so often. You've met the Antichrist. You've met a few of them. John said many have gone out into the world. I promise you, you've met them. Might be sitting next to one right now. You never know. Oh, now everybody's looking around going, oh, oh. Just kidding. So a lot of amazing things about the Revelation that maybe you've never understood or never knew. And, and I've done ridiculous amounts of study into the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to give one, one weird nugget of information. I love history. This is fun. I love history. And during the pandemic, I decided back last summer to write uh, or to, to sit down and write this whole thing on Revelation, and I decided to read the historical works of Flavius Josephus, which if you're a theologian, most theologians have in their library the works of Josephus. It's about this thick, tiny little font, single-spaced, almost impossible to read. It's just tedious, but I decided I'm going to do it anyway. So I get up early in the morning. I'm reading Josephus till I fall asleep, wake up, do it again. I get about three quarters of the way through the book, and I get to the part where he documents, and keep in mind, this guy answers to the emperor of Rome, so this guy's got a, a heavy responsibility, and he's documenting the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and Josephus basically is an objective observer looking at what's happening and simply recording it and reporting it like a historian should, and this is what he says of the final sacrifice in the temple before they destroyed Jerusalem, before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. He says, the priests were leading the heifer into the temple. This caught me. I about fell off my chair. The priests were leading the heifer into the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And behold, you ready for this? The heifer gave birth to a lamb. Yeah, right? That's, that's exactly what I was, I was like, what? Yeah, the heifer gave birth to a lamb. 
Moreover, hanging over the city for the space of an entire year was a flaming comet in the shape of a sword seen by the entire Roman army outside the walls of Jerusalem. What, what is also another thing in the shape of a sword? So what God does is the last year of Jerusalem, he's trying to get the message of the cross across to these people so deeply, he hangs a flaming cross over the city for an entire year, and in the last sacrifice, as they're bringing the heifer into the temple, suddenly God, I'm sure God's thinking, hey, this will be funny. What can we possibly do to let these people, give these people a message about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Put a lamb inside that heifer and have it go into labor right before they sacrifice that thing. And all kinds of crazy stuff happens. The eastern gate of the temple took 20 men to open and close the thing, opens all by itself. All this stuff is going on at the same time. And here's the part that caught my attention, Nathan. And that is that, that Josephus records that in all of this, he's shocked because the priests just simply go about their ministerial duties as if it's not even happening. This is the danger of turning your faith into religious ritual. As you can get into such a deep rut that God can be releasing supernatural activity all around you and it goes right past you as if it's not even there. And Revelation is about how to walk in supernatural power and victory all the days of your life, no matter what generation you're in, all right? So 10 hours of that, that's back there. That'll be a lot of fun for you. Get your Bible, get a notepad, plug that in, and 10 hours later, go and tell all your friends what you learned, and they'll call you a heretic. That'll be fun. Um, all right, if you got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 4 with me today. This is a word that God's been speaking in my heart for some months now. As I've asked the question, Lord, how, how do we get out of this pandemic season? We are in a weird, weird time, and i got to figure out how in the world to get out of it. Lord, I need your help. I need to figure out how to walk forward after a, a year where the idol of our certainty has come toppling down. Understand, we've made certainty an idol. And by that, I mean we plan out the future so strongly. It feels responsible to do that, by the way, and it is. But we plan it out so strongly, and we feel like we've got to stick with our future plan so tightly that if God showed up and tried to change our direction, we would just say no. Matter of fact, we may not even recognize it's the voice of the Lord. We may look at it as an attack against our plan. But this year, we have had our certainty just come crashing down. And so it's actually a really beautiful time because more than any time in my lifetime, the entire body of Christ seems to be poised to listen to the voice of the Lord and say yes. Like if God wanted to change your direction at any moment, many of you are like, wow, my job has been held loosely. Everything's held loosely. Even my health, my family, my life, my home, everything is now, uh, it seems to be held very loosely. And so if God shows up and says, I need you to do this, go here, say this, I think we're all kind of in this position of going, God, the only certainty in, in the entire universe is your voice. And that's the only direction I ever need, all right? It doesn't mean we don't plan, but we make a plan so we know what we might do. But always keep your plans held in a place where you can surrender them to the voice of the Lord at any moment. Uh, God will, you, you say, well, does God, you know, will he surprise me and change a plan? Absolutely. He did this, does this throughout history. He did this with Abraham, where at the bottom of the mountain, he says to Abraham, sacrifice your son. Abraham doesn't understand what in the world's going on because God doesn't do human sacrifice. But Abraham trusts God. He believes God, and for whatever reason, he's just like me. I don't know why God's doing this, but I'm going to go ahead and trust him. I know he's spoken to me. At the bottom of the mountain, the same voice that tells him to do that, at the top of the mountain tells him no. Why? Because Abraham had such a relationship with God that the same voice at the bottom of the mountain was the same voice he heard at the top, and God could give him new directions based upon his previous obedience. One moment of obedience will lead to another moment of obedience, will lead to another moment of obedience to the point where you look back and you go, wow, God has been so faithful. Look where he's led me, right? And that's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, right? doesn't mean you don't make plans. It just means you let your plans be subject to the voice of the Lord. So I've been asking God, you know, how is it that, how is it that we move forward in this thing? And just as Tracy said, it's a heart of humility. It's a heart of, of saying, God, I got to get humble before you. And I got to make this a, 
man, I got to make this a purposeful, intentional posture of the humility of my heart to actually be able to move forward in this. I felt like the Lord drew my attention all the way back to a story in Genesis chapter 4. And to set this story up, uh, I need to, to talk to you just a little bit about, about how God made us. The very first time we see God create and form Adam, he forms him from the dust and the mud and the dirt of earth. He lifts him to his face and he breathes his spirit straight into Adam. By It's a word, actually. It's the word Yahweh. And, and so the very first breath we ever inhaled was the Spirit of God, okay? When man <gasps> takes his very first breath and opens his eyes, our first conscious experience we ever have is to open our eyes to behold the face of a Father who adores us. That's amazing to me, that we were birthed in a face-to-face encounter with God made in his image and likeness. And the very first command that he gives to Adam is this. Adam, I want you to name the animals. Now we think maybe that that's just a throwaway command, like a father would give to a child. But in Hebrew culture, name is identity. And so I want you to see what's happening here. What God tells Adam to do when he gives him dominion and authority over the earth is he literally says, just like God opens his mouth and speaks, and the word is what creates worlds, he says to Adam, I want you to open your mouth and release a sound that will assign identity and nature to the world around you. That's what it means to name the animals. In other words, Adam's going to open his mouth now, and the earth is bound to respond to what comes out of his heart. Okay? What if, just got me thinking, what if we're that powerful? What if that assignment has never changed? What if the earth is actually bound to respond to what you speak? What would, what would change about how we would speak? What we would release? Well, got it got me to thinking a little bit, and so... I just continued to keep reading and studying. And the Lord drew my attention to Genesis chapter 4. And if you want to go here with me, um, you can follow along. Uh, It says, um, let me just give you the basic. Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, they go to church. In other words, they're going to go worship God together. Cain is a uh, a farmer. Abel, he raises cattle, uh, lambs, whatever. He's, He's got flocks. Okay, so... Uh, Cain and Abel come to church with their offering. Abel brings a lamb. That's a big deal. He had to birth that thing, nurture it. He, he had to keep, keep it, care for it, tend it. And, and Cain, on the other hand, he probably just swings by the field and grabs some cucumbers and asparagus and heads on, right? I, I don't know what the guy does, right? But whatever, he just great, grabs his vegetables. He brings his vegetables to God. Abel brings a lamb. God is super impressed with Abel's offering because there's sacrifice attached to it. That's the deal with the offerings, by the way. It's, it's all about the sacrifice. That's why when the, the widow with the two mites came into the temple, the, just two little coins, everybody's giving million-dollar checks, but they can afford it. It's no big deal. And she comes and drops off two little pennies. It's all she's got. And Jesus looks and says she gave more than everybody else because it's the issue of sacrifice that's attached to the offering that seems to really impress the heart of God. And so what, what happens here is God looks at Abel's offering and goes, wow, that's amazing, and he receives that. Cain's offering, and it's not that God doesn't like vegetables, but come on, if you got a choice, right, between a plate of vegetables and a ribeye steak, I, that's a no-brainer to me, and God seems to agree. So <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, no offense, all right? Sorry, all, all good. So, so God basically says to Abel, Abel, way to go. And to Cain, he's like, man, that's not super cool. And Cain gets mad. Now, Cain hasn't done anything yet with this anger, but God decides to come and confront his heart, the condition of his heart. And this is where we pick it up here. The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, what God doesn't say to Cain here is really important. 
God doesn't say to Cain, sin is inside of you because of what your parents did. A lot of people will blame their behavior on something called a sin nature. Well, I'm stuck with this sin nature, which means I, ha I can't help it. I have to sin. I'm just messed up because it's my nature to do it. Let me tell you something. Sin is a choice. You say, do I have a sin nature? Sure. If you want one. The door represents a barrier between you and something else, and you have authority over the door. You know, there's other things on the other side of the door, too. Jesus, in Revelation 3.20, says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll have a meal and build relationship. So the idea is, is this. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus or sin is on the other side of the door. And you have authority over the door. You get to choose what you open the door to. Now, you're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I thought I was stuck with this sin nature because of what Adam did. Well, that's not what God says here. That might have been the case up until the cross. But according to Colossians chapter 3, he says, Paul says, put on the new man who's made in the image or likeness of the one who created him. In other words, that old nature, that thing got taken to the cross with Jesus, buried and when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he didn't give you a brand new sin nature. But he gave you a choice. See, the most powerful force in the entire universe is the word of God. And his word creates entire worlds. But he will not use his word to break your will. He simply offers his word as an invitation for you and I to surrender to what he's spoken to align with what he said. And when we align with his word, that's when there's spiritual power released in your life. There's something about that, but it's your choice. You have a will to choose to either open the door to sin or to open the door to Christ, to open the door to the will of God or to open the door to something else. And you can, over the course of time, open the door to sin enough where you develop a sin habit and a sin desire. And sin has this amazing ability to lie to you. See, sin doesn't change how God feels about you, but it will change how you feel about God. When Adam and Eve sinned, listen, Adam and Eve, they were able to sin, but they did not have a sin nature. Why? Because they were made good, very good, but they were given a will. So they had the choice to sin. They went ahead and sinned because they exercised that choice. God didn't implant inside of them a sin nature, but they could still sin. So just because you can sin doesn't mean you have a sin nature, right? And when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was they hid from God. Why? He'd never done anything mean, cruel, or angry before. He'd been nothing but loving. What's going on here? This is the danger of sin. Sin will actually cause you to question the goodness of God. It twists your perception of the nature and the character of God where you don't believe he's good anymore. And when I see people who, who sit there and go, I'm not sure God is good, I realize they've opened their heart to a vulnerability through an action, through a willful action somewhere in there, there's been an offense or a sin or something that has twisted their perception of the goodness of God. But you do not have a God-given sin nature. Let me just shut that down super quick from the outset here, right? Just, you're like, I don't know if I believe that or not. Okay, that's cool. You don't have to believe the truth if you don't want to. It's your choice can open the door to that. Mm. This just feels really good right now. <clears throat> sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must not master it. Now, if you're Cain and you're thinking, whoa, God, you just confronted me. I got to deal with a heart issue. What am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to go out and make things right with my brother. That's not what Cain does. Cain goes out into the field and we don't know what happens, but when he gets out into the field, he and his brother have a confrontation, and the end result is that Cain murders his brother. Okay? So I want you to see, the very first church service we have on record in the entire Bible results in 50% of the congregation killing the other 50% of the congregation over an offering. Right? So... <laughs> 
the church has been arguing about offerings for a long time. So, so the church is off to a super rocking start, okay? Can't go anywhere but up, all right? So, so God comes to Cain, and this is where the story gets crazy. God comes to Cain and says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God's like, you know what? We're not playing this game. He says, look, what in the world have you done? And he says this. The, listen to this. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And then God says this. And Cain, got some news for you. The ground will no longer work for you. Which is a really bad thing to say to a farmer. In other words, Cain, because of what you've done, there has been something set in motion where the ground is actually going to respond by being angry with you all the days of your life. Now, this is an important point. God never says here in the story that he's cursing Cain. God simply shows up to be a messenger to let Cain know that there's something that has been set in motion here. And it comes from what your brother said from his blood. Now, what is the voice of your blood? Well, the Bible says that life is in the blood. The Bible also says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, which circulates the blood, the mouth speaks. So you can tell what's in your blood by what comes out of your mouth, right? So the voice of your blood is that thing that's the very deepest place inside of you. When all of the inhibitions and everything are stripped away, what comes out? That's the voice of your blood. God says, your brother's blood, the voice of your brother's blood is actually crying out from the ground. Now, listen, I don't know what Abel said. All we can see is how the earth responded. And the earth responds to whatever was in Abel's heart. The earth responds by releasing a generational curse over his brother who was guilty. And that curse follows him all the days of his life. But here's the part that gets me. A human being, from the abundance of their heart, spoke something into the atmosphere, and the earth actually listened. That's interesting. So that tells me that the earth is still, not just in the garden, but even after the garden, the earth is still, for whatever reason, bound to listen to what we say from the abundance of our heart. Now, why is this? Well, Psalm 115, verse 16 might give us a clue. Psalm 115, 16, for those of you who are taking down notes, says this. The heavens were made for God, but the earth he has entrusted to the children of men. See, I think God actually has given you and I authority and dominion in this realm. And, and it's not just the way we farm the land, till the land, do the work that we do, live as human beings. It has everything to do with the fact that you're a spiritual being having a temporary physical experience within a physical world. And made in the image and likeness of God, the sound you release is the sound you choose to release. And if you partner with something that is contrary to heaven, what you release into the atmosphere can produce chaos. But if you partner with the sound of heaven, you might fulfill the prayer of Jesus when he said, I pray that it be on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, you might release the sound of heaven here in this realm. And you know what? It's not just wishful thinking or good ideas or positive vibes. There's more to it than that. There's something about this entire thing that we're doing as human beings within this atmosphere that's to teach us a couple of important points. First is how powerful you actually are. And the second is the reality that you and I carry the responsibility to steward the sound of heaven through the voice in our blood. Now, does God care about how we steward the atmosphere around us? Yeah, he does. I'll tell you one example, and there's hundreds of these throughout the Bible, by the way. Moses is with the children of Israel out in the wilderness, and he's just, he's tired of being the only customer service representative to a million complaining people, right? And so he's just having a bad day. 
The people now, they are thirsty. They need something to drink. It's hot out in the desert. And so he says to God, God, what do I do? And God says to him, see that rock over there? Moses, I want you to go talk to that rock. What? Moses does not feel like talking to a rock that day. He's got a stick in his hand. And he didn't want to say nothing. He just walks over and he just smacks that rock. Now, God honors the exercise of that authority in that moment, and water flows out of the rock, and everybody gets a drink, and the miracle happens. But lest you think that God doesn't care about what Moses did to modify the command, that simple act cost Moses his trip into the promised land because he stewarded with anger what he was supposed to steward with the sound of his blood, a voice that partnered with heaven. God actually cares about this stuff. In Isaiah chapter 24, there's a couple of portions of Isaiah 24 that speak about the effect that we have literally on the environment around us. And one of the parts actually says that the earth totters to and fro like a drunken man, like a shack in the wind because of the transgression in the people that live on it is heavy. In other words, we are weighing this planet down with the issues in our blood crazy. I started looking, noticing this, and, and then all of a sudden I went to Romans chapter 8, a familiar portion of, of scripture that I've been studying my whole life, and I'd never seen it this way. I'd always pushed this thing off into the future, and, and I started realizing Paul was writing to us in the present. Romans chapter 8, and starting in verse 19, says, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revelation of of the sons and daughters or the children of God. The anxious, and here's the deal. Creation, this earth knows who you are. God is actually embedded into the very fiber of every molecule in creation, a revelation of your identity. And so what this verse is telling us is the entire creation, the whole cosmos is waiting for us to get a clue. It's looking for people who know who they are. It's listening for the sound of people who know who they are. But you know what? It has to obey more than just that. You just read on. It says, for creation itself was subjected to futility. It's an interesting phrase here. Creation itself is subjected to futility. What does it mean? It means creation was actually assigned an assignment that was pretty much bound to go wrong. I mean, at some point, some human being was going to probably disobey God. You would hope it would be a few generations in, but it just happened to be the very first two ever. So here we are, right? So when Adam and Eve do this, what happens? They subjected creation to futility, but who commanded it? It says, not willingly. In other words, creation didn't sign up for this. It says, because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that this entire atmosphere, that creation would be freed, listen to this, from its slavery to corruption. Now, wait a minute. Hang on a second. Creation is enslaved, and not just enslaved to good people, not just enslaved to the sound of heaven. No, it's actually bound to obey us. Slavery, it's like this. It's, it's, like, it's like if Jason, if I'm enslaved to Jason, which wouldn't be hard because he's a big guy, okay? <laughs> if I'm enslaved to Jason, it would mean this. I don't have a will of my own. I have to do what his will is. How can I know what his will is? I have to listen for the sound of his voice. What he speaks becomes my command. I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm, I got to do whatever you say. And the Bible, according to Romans chapter 8, says that the cosmos creation is literally enslaved, bound to the will of another is what that means, enslaved even to us in our corruption. But the destiny is that this whole thing, all the earth, the atmosphere around us, our homes, everything is waiting for a freedom of the sound of heaven to flow from the people of God into it. It says that it would be freed from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now you say, where do you see this practically in the world today? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Right now, 
especially here in the United States of America, in the last year and a half, we have never had a more divided spiritual and political climate in my lifetime. I've never seen a time where the nation was more divided politically, and I've never seen a time where the, the political spirit has gotten into the church to divide us spiritually. And interestingly enough, we've gotten really loud about it, super loud. I don't know if you've been on social media lately, but that dumpster fire is not a lot of fun. And a lot of people have taken on the ministry of arguing with other Christians on Facebook, thinking they're going to change somebody else's mind, and the entire world is watching us, okay? Now, is it having an effect in this world? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, we live in Florida, which means we get hurricanes every now and then. About every three to four years, we get a decent one that comes along, blows around, and, and destroys some stuff. And uh, um, they're easy to get out of the way from. It's like the slowest moving train ever. You know? So uh, we've ridden a couple of them out, and uh, they're not a lot of fun. But for the last 101 years, the United States has actually been tracking hurricanes. And do you know that in 2020, we set a record for how many hurricanes made landfall in the United States. We actually blew the old record out of the water. In 2020, 12 hurricanes made landfall. You heard about the first three, but the rest of them, they didn't make the news because there was a lot of other things going on in the news at the time. 12. California had the worst wildfire season on record. Texas froze. The entire state for the first time in recorded history, Texas, every square mile of Texas had snow. My daughter lives in Austin, and uh, she's, I said, call her up. I said, she says, Dad, we lost all power. We're bringing snow in from the outside, putting it in the bathtub so we can melt it, so we can flush the toilet, but it won't melt because it's 21 degrees in the apartment. So we <laughs> had to put it out on a grill outside and melt it in pots. I'm like, what is this, the 1800s? What is going on here? We just had the hottest July in recorded history. You say, what is going on here? Now, I'm part of a lot of prophetic roundtables online, and we're sitting there and talking about all this stuff, and people start looking at the weather, and they go, oh, it's the judgment of God. But as I study the scriptures, I'm sitting there going, do we have any responsibility in this at all? And as I study and see the authority that we carry, the image and likeness that we're made in, and what God has told us about what we have stewardship over and how we're supposed to steward it with the sound in our blood, I kind of raise my hand and go, you know what, guys? I think it is judgment, but I don't think it's God. I think it's us. I think we have let judgment and offense leak into our blood. And it's coming out of our mouth, off of our fingertips. And it's going out into the world. And the earth is responding. Either that or the Bible's just not true. But as I look at it, I'm sitting there going, wow, God, you're giving us a clue. And it's in blinking neon lights. We have a responsibility for what comes out of our blood. Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to go there with me, that'll be kind of fun. As you're going to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 22, and this is where we'll land the plane today. In Hebrews 12, there's an incredible story uh, that's, that's culminating in this declaration of where you and I are right now in the Spirit. It says, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the new Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, which is what the covenant's about here, the covenant of the sprinkled blood, who speaks a better word than the blood of who? Say it. Oh, we're all the way back to Abel again. Oh, wait a minute. What is going on here? Because it seems like we should be comparing Abel and Jesus, not contrasting them, because they're so much more alike than they are different, right? Like, Abel is innocent. So is Jesus. Abel was righteous. According to Matthew 23, Jesus calls Abel righteous. Abel was righteous. So was Jesus. Abel was murdered by somebody who should have loved him and protected him. So was Jesus. God in Christ was literally murdered. God literally murdered by his own creation. They're so much more alike than they are different except in one area. One area. And that is what their blood said. 
how do we know what Jesus' blood said? You can hear it from the abundance of his heart. He's hanging on the cross. And he's looking. He's bleeding out. Beaten, according to Isaiah, beyond human recognition. And he's looking at a, a, a company of people down here who don't care that he's dying. Most of them. Some of them are happy about it. There's some people gambling for his clothing down here. Thieves are arguing. And everybody around him is just like, it's, it's chaos. And this is what Jesus says. He utters these words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The final act of forgiveness on the cross from the Son of God was to forgive our ignorance. Our ignorance. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Now, this isn't this isn't a heartbroken son appealing to a reluctant father to forgive an unforgivable humanity in its darkest moment. Because Jesus said, I only say what I hear the father say. So when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, he was putting the father's heart on display. He was showing us what the father thinks about us. That at our darkest, our worst moment, he initiates with grace. That he's not just waiting for us to just get it right before he releases grace over us. Well, what are we going to do with the word that's released over us here? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And an amazing thing happens. Jesus finally says, it is finished. And he dies. And you know what the earth does? It throws a fit. The sky rolls back, goes dark, lightning streaks across the sky, crashing thunder everywhere. The earth shakes, rocks break apart. Here's something interesting. Nobody dies. Why? Because Jesus has just released grace over these people and the earth can't touch anybody. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite happens. The Bible says that the ground spits a bunch of dead people out and they start walking around. That's kind of cool. <laughs> like, what is going on here? What year is it again? So I guess the question that we have is, is this. What's in your blood? What are you aligning your heart with in this season? You say, listen, I, I got a lot of judgment and offense in me, but it's justified, Bill. And I would say Abel's offense was justified too. If anybody had justified offense, it was Abel. But I got news for you. I don't think the earth is judging whether or not our offense is justified or not. It's just listening for judgment. And when it hears judgment, it responds. It's listening for judgment or grace, not looking for the motive behind either one of them. Doesn't care whether it's justified or not. Justified judgment still seems to release a curse into the environment that we live in. It releases a curse into the atmosphere. It has effects spiritually upon the atmosphere around us. So the question I have is what's in your blood? What have you allowed in your blood in this last season? See, I just feel like the entire body of Christ just needs to get a, get a good blood transfusion right now. I'll give you an example. I was talking to some of the leaders yesterday about this, and, and this is kind of what prompted what I felt like was supposed to share today. Uh, you guys remember the story? Jesus, he's walking along, and uh, this woman comes up to, to him, and she touches the hem of his garment, and, and she gets healed. Anybody remember that story? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Jesus is walking along one day. People are touching him all over the place, and they're patting him on the back. They're trying to take selfies with the Son of God, and whatever's happening there, this woman comes through the crowd, and she just goes, I don't even care if he knows I'm here, touches the hem of his garment, and suddenly Jesus goes, whoa, somebody touched me, okay? Ask yourself this question. Where was she going? Where was he going? The answer to the question is that he was going on his way to raise a girl from the dead, a little girl from the dead, the daughter of a man named Jairus. He was going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he would have gotten there sooner, but he was detained by somebody from an older generation who still had issues in her blood. 
Let me say it like this. God was going to bring resurrection life to the next generation, the young generation, the youth of the nation, the next generation. But he couldn't get there in, in the time that he was looking to get there because he was detained by an older generation that still had issues in their blood. When he finally shows up at Jairus' house, the mob all standing around goes, hey, it's not even worth even being here anymore. She's dead. She's gone. And Jesus goes, she's not dead. She's just what? Asleep. I'm here to wake her. Let me change the language a little bit. I'm here to woke her. What? Yeah. Jesus looks at this little girl. He says, little girl, arise. First thing he says, give her something to eat. Because when God brings an awakening to the next generation, the first thing they need is something, somebody to ground them into the meat of the word of God. Right? And here's the thing. You say, wait, 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 Bill, have you heard this woke language? It's offensive. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. I agree with you. But here's the deal. We're asking, my generation is asking for a great awakening. What if God's intention is to bring it to the next generation? And, and what if they are from the inside of their being having something stirred in them and they don't know how to give language to it? They're just like, something's happening in me. I don't know what it is. See, when you, when you uh, wake up in the morning and somebody tries to talk to you, this is what you typically will say. Whoa, don't talk to me. I'm just waking up. What are you saying? I'm in a state of incredible vulnerability because I'm going from one state to another. And I'm going to admit to you, I'm going to be transparent and say, I'm being vulnerable right now. And when I hear woke language from the next generation, what I'm hearing is there's something in them that is admitting a vulnerability of transformation. They just don't know what the transformation is right? Maybe it's this political spirit. Maybe it's that thing. And I think what they're doing is the entire next generation is looking across the spectrum of people who have gone before saying, do you have an awakening for me? Is my awakening here? Is my awakening here? And I think God has actually placed within us the answer to that. His name is Jesus Christ. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he wants to bring a revival to this world. And he may do it. He may do it through a generation that you and I have written off because we're offended by their woke language. But maybe the Holy Spirit is seeding into the heart of this next generation of vulnerable transformation where they don't know how to put language to the awakening that they're feeling is crying out from inside of them. And they're looking, it's going, church, do you have an awakening for me? And maybe the one thing that's standing between us and the revival that's coming is the issues in our blood. See, if we deal with our blood issues, it won't just bring revival to this nation. It, it'll bring a complete transformation to the body of Christ as we start to release the sound of heaven and release the grace of God into the earth. Jesus walking along one day, and he says, I tell you the truth, you say to this mountain, which could be any circumstance, could be any sickness, could be any job issue, could be anything in your life that is an obstacle. I tell you the truth, you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Don't doubt in your heart, but believe that the things you speak will come to pass. You will have whatever you say. What is he saying? Even in the new covenant, the earth is waiting to listen for the sound that comes out of your blood. But Jesus wouldn't have said that talking about moving mountains if he hadn't already laid a foundation of it. And back in Isaiah, he tells us the posture of our heart when it comes to obstacles in our life. And it says this, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. There will be shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will applaud because the earth is waiting for us to get it right. That's why people applaud when we get it right. Now here's the deal. So here's the posture. You say, how in the world do I live this? How do I get this blood issue dealt with in my heart? The first thing is to recognize if you partner with judgment and offense, it's a day to let the Spirit of God come in and just cleanse you and give you a whole blood transfusion. Say, God, I need offense and judgment taken out of my heart. Because without that, you can't fulfill the mandate of Jesus to love your enemies. 
He did say that, by the way. But here's the posture of the heart that actually, I think, is the empowered moving forward in the body of Christ. You shall go out with joy. What is joy? The Bible says that in the presence of the Lord is what? Fullness of joy. So when I go out with joy, it means this. I begin aware of the presence of God. I never move without an awareness of the presence of God. And you know what the Bible says of the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is your what? Your strength. When I let myself, either through worship or through prayer or through praise or through studying the scriptures or through conversations with believers, if I let myself consistently be aware of the presence of God, there will be an internal joy that fills me up from the inside out that strengthens and empowers me to go forward. So with that, my life is propelled literally by the joy of the Lord. But I'm not, I'm not just covered in my backside. I'm covered on the front too. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Peace is a person. Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. In other words, I have confidence that Christ goes before me, propelled by the presence of God. The peace of Christ literally leads me. And every step I take, I walk into breakthrough everywhere I go. Tracy and I have started practicing this reality, and we started seeing amazing results. This past summer, we're up in Minnesota. They were facing a drought in Minnesota. We got there, and the guy says, we're in a farmer's yard. We're outside. This guy says, we haven't had rain over two and a half months. It's crazy out here. There's no rain in the forecast. We are facing a major problem, major drought. We started talking about the sound in your blood. Asked if anybody partnered with judgment and offense in this last season. Oh, my goodness. Nearly every hand goes up. We just say, Holy Spirit, Give us a divine blood transfusion. And then we begin to worship God. And as we begin to worship God, something we tell and the atmosphere changed. Nothing happened that night, but the next morning, Tracy and I wake up and there's just a deluge of rain. It rains for the next two days, for the next three weeks. We crisscrossed from South Dakota to Minnesota to Wisconsin. And everywhere we went, we had our windshield wipers on. And I'm like, hey, maybe this isn't a theory. Maybe the earth is literally waiting for the refreshing of the sound of heaven to flow through the people of God. I want you to stand with me this morning. We're talking, we're talking about posturing our hearts as the body of Christ to step into this next season, to see revival come, not just to my generation and above, but to the young generation. How many of you, how many of you are under 30 in this room? Under 30, raise your hand. All over this room. Put it, put it up high. I want you to see. Look, all over this room. These are the guys, guys. Y'all, there is an awakening coming to this generation. There is an awakening coming to this generation. Okay, everybody put your hands down. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Just close your eyes for just a moment with me. I want you to search your heart over this last season. Have you allowed judgment and offense to get into your blood? Have you allowed judgment and offense to get into your blood? See, the thing about judgment, it'll eat you up from the inside out. It'll cause you to feel so spiritually weak that you don't even feel like you've got enough faith to pray for the sick. Today, if you say, I can see, I've let judgment and offense into my blood somewhere. It could be against a singular individual. It can be against an entire group of people. But if you could say, yeah, Bill, I've let judgment and offense into my blood. And today, I need the Holy Spirit to give me a divine blood transfusion. I want to be free from this. Would you just take and just lift just both of your hands up? Be so bold as just to lift both. I'm, I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. This is the beginning of revival, you guys. This is what it takes for the body of Christ to say, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you. Okay, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me just from your heart. Say, Jesus, I need your blood to purify my heart from the inside out. Take all judgment and all offense from my blood and let me release and speak from my heart the sound of heaven, the sound of healing, the sound of revival, the sound of grace. And we're going to make some declarations. Say this, grace is in my blood. 
<laughs> you feel it? Great, say it again. Grace is in my blood. <laughs> Love is in my blood. The power of God is in my blood. Healing is in my blood. Okay, now take your hands that are up like this, just like this, and I want you to put them on the shoulder of the person next to you, and I just want you to speak grace over them. We're going to practice giving grace away right now to the people around us. Holy Spirit, right now, all over this room, Lord, let a, let a flood of grace fill this house. Fill this house. May you begin in this room with something that shakes this state, that shakes this state. As I feel like the earth is rejoicing right now, like the atmosphere is rejoicing right now because the sound of heaven is about to be released from the people of God in a new way. That'll break depression off of lives. That'll break stress off of homes. That'll break sickness and disease off of bodies. What if, what if this is the answer to the end of this pandemic? Huh? What if dealing with the issues of our blood is the answer to the end of this pandemic? To release grace into the atmosphere. So God, we're tired of judgment and offense. God, we need your grace. We need a revival of your grace. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to worship together. Lift your voices up as one, and let's lift up a sound from our blood into this atmosphere. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you'd like to partner with us, you have the opportunity to give online at providencecommunity.org. 